Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Um, just the most amazing day. It's the last dregs of summer, I know, but it's hard to feel downcast when it's so beautiful. And after this, I think I'm going to go out for a walk in the park. So let's crack on. So we began in the traditional way with the links I liked uh, collection of good stuff on social media. One of the big stories was the, um, the World Bank, which has scrapped its doing business report. This report has been hugely controversial for all sorts of reasons, and it sort of ranked countries purportedly by how good they were or how easy it was to do business in these places. But the report was riddled with ideology and bias. Um, in particular, the, the, it's been caught out fiddling the numbers to avoid alienating, to basically get the right answers. So avoid antagonizing China, make sure that Saudi Arabia finishes above Jordan, all sorts of dodgy behavior. But actually, even without all that, I always was, yeah, I think, uh, along with a lot of other people, very critical about the whole um, basis of the report, which was, which was largely the more you resemble the American dream rather than the American reality, which is focused on low taxation, low regulation, opening up to foreign investment, yeah, the, the easier it is to do business in your place. And yet we know from the work of Harjun Chang and lots of other people that that's not how America developed. That's not how the Asian tigers like you know, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, China developed. They've always used measures which actually get you marked down in the ease of doing business reports. So what actually is it measuring? So I'm actually really glad that it's been scrapped and uh, good riddance, frankly. The other thing I linked to was um, a really nice piece by Lance Pritchard at Harvard, um, who just asked a slightly sort of sideways question on Afghanistan, which is the kind of thing he does very well, which is, how do you sustain 20 years of effort while constantly failing? So he just sort of was thinking about how do you describe what you're doing to yourself and to your political masters in such a way that you can carry on failing for 20 years before the roof falls in. And he had three big sort of answers. One is you promote isomorphic mimicry, this idea that you, you create institutions which resemble Western institutions, even if they don't do the same thing, and that that keeps your paymasters happy. So lots of, lots of that sort of um, uh, camouflage effort. Premature load bearing of the new institutions. So when you create these new institutions, you ask them to do a load of things which they're not ready to do. And then third, cocoon projects in a sea of US contractors, which keeps everybody in Washington on side because everybody's making money. So I thought that that was a good piece and worth reading if you've got the time. Second piece of the week, <clears throat> I got really excited because um, uh, one of my development heroes emailed me, uh, Jean Drez, who is um, a Belgian economist who has been living in India forever. He's kind of more Gandhian than Gandhi. He you know, lives in a shanty town. When he taught briefly at the LSE, he used to sleep rough in the local park. Um, he's a legend, this guy. Uh, often uh, collaborates with Amartya Sen, very well thought of in India. Um, and he wanted to uh, publicize some new research um, on India's um, education system, showing that actually it's been really badly damaged by COVID. So um, I was more than, more than happy, you know, basically very, very excited about having Jean on the, on the blog. And I'll read you some bits of what he, what he wrote. So Indian children have been locked out of school for almost a year and a half. This lockout, one of the longest in the world, has played havoc with their lives and the country's fragile schooling system. 
Last month, dozens of volunteers, mainly university students, fanned out to underprivileged neighbourhoods around the country to meet school children and their families. They interviewed nearly 1,400 households with at least one child enrolled. The findings released last week are more than alarming. The School Children's Online and Offline Learning, or School Survey, clever as we call it, found that online education had a very limited reach. The proportion of sample children who were studying online regularly was just 24% in urban areas and 8% in rural areas. This is all the more striking as three quarters of urban households and half of rural households in the sample had a smartphone. Among parents of online children, those who were studying online, only a small minority were satisfied with their child's study material. More than two thirds felt that their child's reading and writing abilities were higher before the lockout than they are today. If online children had a hard time staying afloat, the rest, the offline children, were mostly left to drift away or sink. In rural areas, nearly half of offline children were not studying at all at the time of the survey. Access to education has been particularly restricted for Dalit and Adivasi children, who needed it the most. A simple reading test confirmed that child literacy rates have sunk well below ordinary levels. In the age group of 8 to 12, for example, only half of rural children were able to read a simple sentence. Literacy is a basic tool of self-defence in modern society. Without it, children are exposed not only to economic hardship, but also to lifelong powerlessness and exploitation. Literacy is also a springboard of further study. A resurgence of mass literacy, mass illiteracy sorry, among children, if it is allowed to happen, could have dire and lasting consequences. Instead of helping disadvantaged children, however, the schooling system is simply catapulting them two grades ahead of the class they enrolled in before the lockout. Children who have forgotten the Hindi alphabet are now saddled with thick English textbooks. Without radical changes in curriculum and pedagogy, these children have no chance. The central government, alas, seems to be in denial about the schooling crisis. This year, when extra resources were urgently needed to renovate schools, train teachers, prepare new learning material and initiate health-related precautions, the Finance Minister blissfully reduced the budget of the Department of School Education by 10%. The Prime Minister last week said, The challenges of education were many, but all of you found solutions to those challenges swiftly. Online classes, group video calls, online projects, online exams, etc. were not even heard before. But our teachers, parents and our youth have easily made them a part of their daily life. Really? That's certainly not what the research shows. An enlightened strategy to deal with the schooling crisis is nowhere in sight. All eyes are on the country's educationalists, thinkers and practitioners for a way forward. As things stand, the system seems to be heading for business as usual as and when schools reopen. And this is a recipe for disaster. So a great piece of research and advocacy from Jean Dres and his crew. The next piece was uh, somebody else who got in touch, Dirk Jan Koch. Uh, um, who uh, is a Dutch academic, and he's been looking at um, all the evaluations uh, of Dutch aid uh, uh, operations, I mean, so which is a heroic task, so hands off to Dirk Jan. And what he wanted to blog about was the top 10 unintended effects of aid, which I think was quite, yeah, which I found right, int quite intriguing. So they went through and they looked at the unintended consequences of different aid programmes, and then they scored them and, and ranked them. So the most common uh, unintended effect is catalytic spillover effects. 
So these are things which spill over from the aid program and affect the context, the situation, the people around them, and you and it wasn't part of the plan. And it was much the most common. When we think of unplanned effects, we only think of negative side effects, but that is not correct. Think, for instance, about medicines. They can also have positive side effects. You want to strengthen, uh, or you want to strengthen women's rights because it's worth pursuing in itself. But you then see that child mortality is also reduced as a result, a catalytic effect. So they found lots of positive catalytic effects as well as negative. Governance effects were the second. And they are effects that have an impact on the quality of governance. But what is striking is that governance effects are often positive, a bit like the um, spillover effects. When recipient governments see that a foreign-backed reform is working in one province, they often scale it up to, another, to other provinces. So the, the top two were either partly or largely positive. Uh, after that, it all goes a bit um, pear-shaped and goes, goes, goes negative. Third was leakage effects. And unfortunately, leakage effects are all negative. There is a leakage effect if an intervention seems to solve a problem but is actually only relocated. You see it, for example, in capacity building programs. You strengthen the NGO, you hire extra people, you give them extra training, but those employees then come, uh, come from the national government. So you're actually weakening the state in order to build capacity for the NGOs. And I've seen that in too many cases. Fourth was behavioural effects. You can speak of unplanned behavioural effects if those involved in aid programmes behave differently than you expected. Imagine you always wanted to protect the forest where you live, but now you get money from the World Bank for two years if you don't cut down the forest. Then what happens after two years when the World Bank payments end? All too often, it turns out that intrinsic motivation decreases and deforestation increases. Fifth is marginalisation effects. Isn't international cooperation supposed to reduce inequality? Yes. But it appears that aid can also further weaken the position of the vulnerable. For example, women receive microcredit, but they had to transfer the loan straight to their husbands. And sub subsequently, the women were left with the problems when the loan had to be repaid and often had to deal with additional domestic violence in the process. Six is price effects. Food aid, for example, makes food much cheaper, which is good for consumers, but bad for local farmers who can no longer sell their crops. Seven, migration and resettlement effects. So two, two kinds there. Many people can move to an area if there is a successful development project. But there's also a flip side. Governments resettle people away from some projects, dams and so on. And the point is, both those populations fall completely outside most evaluations, so you don't really know what's going on. Conflict effects. This was a bit of good news here. Extra tensions arise as a result of the external intervention, for example, between recipients and non-recipients, especially if there are ethnic tensions between these two groups to start with. Fortunately, this is the good news, it seems that organisations are increasingly pursuing a conflict-sensitive way of working, and the researchers didn't find many, any recent evaluations which showed this conflict problem emerging from as, a, as an unintended side effect. Then a dog that didn't bark, number nine, Nationalist backlash. What surprised me is that we did not find the nationalist backlash effect in any of the evaluations, while it is very present in the academic literature. So this is where um, you know, nationalists uh, slag off the aid programme and use it to whip up nationalist opposition to the recipients, to minority groups, or to the foreign powers that are giving the aid. Number 10 was poor performance effects. And this is a separate type uh, of side effect. Um, 
and they're needless because they, they occur through poor execution. So I think Dirk Jan is slightly cheating by including it here. Um, and they're actually the second most common, uh, but he put it in 10th spot just so he had a chance to mention it. And so he concludes, often policymakers and evaluators say they don't know what to look for when asked to consider or evaluate unintended effects. With this top 10 in hand, they no longer have that excuse. So I thought it was really useful. So you've actually got an, uh, uh, a big aid programme, the Dutch aid programme, um, some research showing the kinds of unintended consequences that those aid projects have so that um, evaluators for other aid agencies and for the Dutch aid agency now have a kind of uh, a set of suspects that they should be looking for when they do their evaluations. And when they do the, even more important, when they do the project design. So I thought a very useful piece of research there. Final post of the week was a book review. From Anger to Action, Inside the Global Movements for Social Justice, Peace and a Sustainable Planet by Harriet Lamb and Ben Jackson, two veteran UK activists. And I had some mixed feelings about this book, I must say, um, which is always tricky when you're uh, reviewing a book by friends, but I tried to be as fair as possible. Dry slurp of tea, getting a dry throat. Um, I've come to recognise a certain format for inspirational books for activists. Big sweeping statement about what needs to happen, and then what I call thousand points of light, breathless accounts of some activist-led efforts to achieve these goals, onto the call to arms invoking political will, job done. It's not good enough and I must be getting rather jaded if that's what I see when I'm reading. What's wrong with the format? Well, it may inspire, but it misses or downplays big and crucial issues, which I think activists need to think about when they're discussing social change. Not least deeper political analysis of the likelihood of victory and defeat and what make either of them what might make either of them more or less likely. There's a much used quote from Gramsci, um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I'm not going that far. I think I'm going for realism of the intellect and actually using the intellect plus optimism of the will. Now, I was a bit worried that From Anger to Action uh, was going to follow this format. Um, and it does in part, um, but, but then it rescues itself at the end. Now, just, just a bit of context. Harriet Lamb and Ben Jackson have been working together uh, on you know, in various change campaigns for decades, and they cut their teeth on a landmark case, the Pergale Dam, which was a big case in the 1990s where the British, they took the British government to court and won when they were working for a small organisation called the World Development Movement, which is now called Global Justice Now. And so the book opens with a whole um, passage from what they learned from that, from that first campaign. And then they, they sort of work through um, um, some other things, that you know, uh, other periods they've seen. What they see around them today is a, movement of, is a moment of surging movements, a rising global tide of civic activism driven by broken formal politics, a new generation of youth activists and the power of digital technology. Much of this bypasses the, the traditional NGOs for which the authors have worked for many years. And here they argue for building better links between the two, although I'm not sure that the new activists actually want um, to be uh, linked up to traditional NGOs who they see as rather stale and useless. Um, and they argue, and they, yeah, this is when they get onto what's the closest thing to their theory of change. The, uh, the authors argue that progress will rely on believe, battle and build. Now, that's their, their headline. Then they, they, go, they go into thousand points of light on big issues, climate change, war, refugees, inequality and HIV slash COVID. So each sets out the challenge, the case for change and the points of light. 
Why isn't that good? Why isn't that good enough? Well, why should skeptics believe this new wave exists at sufficient scale to sweep all before it? Where are the examples of what doesn't work to strengthen the persuasive power of the stories about what does? Where, sorry about this, is the theory of change that makes sense of it all? The last two chapters brought some relief. Okay, so the, la the first is a great whistle-stop tour of Western activism from 1945 to the present. And if you want a kind of one-chapter update on the history of activism in the West for your course, for your reading list, or just because you're interested, I really recommend it. It's very well written and very uh, concise. Um, the final chapter, the ninth chapter, is their theory of action. And what they talk about is these three wheels of change, believe, battle and build. And this is what they say. The change we see coming can be imagined as a three-wheeled cycle ridden by us citizens, its wheels representing our three instincts to believe, battle and build. The front wheel gives us our beliefs, the values of the good society to inspire, motivate and guide us. The two back wheels are on one side, our campaign battles to wrest changes from the powerful, and on the other, our building through our actions and choices of the living alternatives that prefigure a better future. Each wheel of change reinforces and relies upon the other, and the biggest breakthroughs will happen where they work in synergy, gaining momentum together as when you power your cycle down a long, gentle slope. I must admit, I have a bit of a problem with the metaphor in that this is basically a tricycle, which is not a good look and is unlikely to inspire the youth. Um, but apart from that, I think the, 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 the pieces are interesting. I would sort of like much more on the how of all this, a look at some of the less rosy aspects of the activist garden. You know, they make out that this is all surging and great. Well, a lot of the surging in recent years has been very unappealing. Brexit, all right, populism, and identity politics seems to have brought both energy and vociferousness, or whatever the word is for endless divisions and subdivisions and internal fights. So I don't see that as, as leading to great coalition building and big social change. But I guess I'm not the intended audience. I'm an old and jaded activist or ex-activist. And there's plenty of food for thought and action for today's current and future activists in the book. So I think it's worth a read. Uh, and on that note, I shall end this week's lesson. OK, talk to you next week. Bye.